This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 421, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And um, today I'm making this podcast from a very gray and rainy week in New York City. We're heading into the fall. Um, one... Well, so much is going on in my life right now. It's great. I'm extremely busy doing a lot of gigs. I had two gigs in a rehearsal yesterday, and a lot of my days are becoming like that. And uh, doing a lot of Skype teaching. And uh, if you're interested in that, hook me up, look me up. Um, but I did want to mention something really special, and that is that yesterday I uh, I got my I booked my first gig at Carnegie Hall. So it's the smaller hall. Carnegie Carnegie Hall has several different spaces in it. Um, so it's the smaller hall, which is called Zankel Hall, although the entire place is called Carnegie Hall. But I'm, I'm going to be doing a big benefit there on October 1st, and I'm very excited to share that with you guys. It's kind of a big New York arrival, something I've always, a place I've always wanted to play, and hopefully it will not be the last, uh, the last time. But today we're going to be focusing on something that's um, fun and near dear to my heart. I, you know, a few weeks ago did some John Bonham podcasts. People really liked those and said, why don't you do some other drummers? I like to try to do them in different ways. So today, um, I'm going to focus on Jeff Percaro, the great legendary studio drummer, Jeff Percaro, icon, legend. Um, probably most people have heard his name, but, um, he really is a, a special guy that had a tremendous career that unfortunately was cut short when he died, uh, in 1992, I think he was 38 years old, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, he didn't even make it to 40. So uh, it's, um, but it, in his 20 years or so of being um, in the uh, in 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 the the recording spotlight, he just did a tremendous amount of stuff. So joining me on the podcast today is someone I've known for a long time, um, someone who's been a friend for many years. In fact, someone who I sh- share the same birthday with, and that is Chris Brady, who is the artist relations, um, uh, you know, artist relations head over at Aquarian Drumheads. I've been with Aquarian for I think twenty four, twenty five years now, and Chris has been there pretty much the whole time. Um, I think he got there a year before I signed up. So I've known Chris very well. And one of the things about Chris is that he is a huge Jeff Picaro fanatic and aficionado and knows a lot about Jeff. So when I thought about doing this podcast, I was like, why don't I call Chris and we'll get him on and have his uh, opinions and thoughts and perspective on this really fantastic drummer. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to hop right into my interview with Chris Brady here on The Daniel Glass Show as we look deep into the life and career of Jeff Porcaro. Well, I want to welcome the one, the only Chris Brady to The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. Chris, it is a huge pleasure to have you on board. Daniel, thanks so much for uh, 
asking me to be part of this uh, podcast today. Um, you know, when you mentioned Jeff, I'm in. <laughs> exactly. And I, I should, you know, uh, preface this by saying that you and I have known each other for a very long time in this industry. And um, one of the, you know, one of the things that we've always talked about, one of the things that I've always loved about you is your, is your, uh, I guess, um, you know, uh, super fandom of Jeff Bercaro. And, uh, you know, that's just like, that's been your guy. And I remember in, you know, there, there are photos you post on Facebook where you've got the same glasses and you had the same kind of hairdo, 80s hairdo. And um, why, why, why do you think Jeff Bercaro is your guy? Well, you know, I think it was probably somewhere in high school, 82, 83, I saw Toto, at what then was Irvine Meadows. But I wasn't, I just started to get into drums and I was more into the fusion-y stuff. So that record had just come out and of course Africa and Rosanna were huge, becoming huge hits. You're talking about Toto 4. Toto 4, yeah. yeah. So that was amazing, but I wasn't a huge Jeff fanatic at that point. That didn't happen till later. And that was sort of, I started studying with Greg Bissonette and I think during there, Greg kind of, you know, got me more into that kind of stuff, uh, and especially Jeff. Uh, and that's where it really kicked into high gear. <laughs> Maybe too much. It became, you know, it became <laughs> idol worship of sorts. But, you know, if you got to pick, I'd say Jeff and Vinny are my two all time heroes. And if you've got to pick, if you got to boil it down to just a few guys, <laughs> yeah. those two guys aren't too bad to boil it down to. That's right. And from the you know commentator historian perspective that I often come from, they're great because they cover such a broad swath of um, you know of music of the last what twenty, thirty, forty years. You know, we've we've heard so many artists with so many tracks that these guys have played on. So it's it's a great way to look at different eras of music or look at different eras of drumming, I would say. Well, they're definitely not one-trick ponies. The, if you put those two guys together, and guys like Steve Gatt, all those type of guys, the, the sheer number of artists they've played with is staggering, and also the variety of genres, from yeah. jazz to pop to heavy rock to Latin-y, you know, Brazilian-flavored stuff. It's really amazing. Yeah. You know? It is, and I think it's, uh, you know, uh, it encapsulates a particular era of drumming that, you know, it doesn't really exist anymore today. I mean, drumming is, is always evolving and changing, but it really captures a, a particular period uh, of the, you know, the primarily the 70s, 70s and 80s, certainly for Jeff, because uh, Jeff died, what, what did we say, 1992, right? So, um, yes. you know, and tr rather tragically, he was still quite a young man. Um, his life was cut short. So it's hard to know, you know, one can only imagine what he would have gone on to do. Um, it's, you know, but, uh, but that's, that's, that's how it went down. So what, what we have is what we have. And, and thankfully we have just a huge amount of, of recorded material. And I thought today in our conversation, since we have limited time, we could obviously spend hours and hours on this topic that, um, you know, that, that we could, uh, kind of go back to, sort of look chronologically at his career and just kind of talk about it, how it affected us as drummers, because we're both about the same age and we grew up, grew up, I should say, listening to a lot of stuff that was Jeff, that was getting us excited about drumming without even realizing that it was Jeff, you know, because when you're young, you don't, you just know you like the drums on something. Um, so let's, let's start. I also have to say, 
preface this conversation by saying that when I when I asked Chris to be a part of this uh, of this podcast, and I thought, you know, send me a list of a couple of tunes that you think really stand out for Jeff, and I sent him some some tunes, and we were trying to come up with maybe, you know, let's pick five tunes or eight tunes that really represent. So he sends me a spreadsheet, <laughs> I kid you not, that has one, two, three, four, five tabs on it, songs, go-to artists, albums, halftime 16th uh, note grooves, halftime shuffles, um, amazing, amazing stuff. And so um, I think, you know, there's there's just so much here. And and this was just off the top of his head, breaking some things down. Daniel, um, yes. You know when you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns, <laughs> That's baby. That's it. That's it, and that's precisely why I reached out to you for this. But um, it's it's just it's just amazing. Uh, it, it's just an amazing you know uh, tribute to to the just beginning to look at the breadth of of stuff that that Jeff played on in his career and how diverse he was. So let's let's start at sort of the beginning. Um, an album that you loved as a kid uh, from 1974, Sonny and Cher live in Las Vegas. Uh, tell us a little bit about this album and who's on it and what got to you about it in 19... I don't know, were you listening to it in 1974 or was oh, that... No, no, I got... You got it later on. found out about this much later. Somebody I knew had the album who was an audiophile guy and then put it onto a disc for me because I, I don't think you can get it on disc. You can still find it on eBay on, on a record. But anyway, I, I couldn't believe it because, you know, Jeff would have been late teens, maybe 20, maybe 1920-ish, somewhere in there. And first of all, I thought the drums sounded really amazing. But then when you realize he's doing a, he's, he's backing a full orchestra and you, and, and it just occurred to me what an old soul he was, because there's no way you listen to that and you go, oh, this is some 19-year-old kid. He's playing way beyond his years to navigate a full orchestra, a full production with Sonny and Cher. And, of course, the grooves are just amazing. His time is impeccable, as always, and it feels great. And he's just playing some cool, hip, inside stuff. And it's live, so, you know, it's just all raw. I don't know. It's it's definitely one, if you can seek it out, it's one to have in your collection, if you can locate it somehow. Yeah, I'm definitely going to seek it out uh, after, after hearing about it from you. Um, and you were telling me that, like, you know, I, I should point out, by the way, that um, at this point in time, Jeff was was he already the drummer on the Study and Share television show? I believe so. I, I don't know all that chronology that great, but yeah, I remember Joe, his father, Joe Picaro, telling me I, I think he had to leave. He had to graduate high school early to go on tour and do the work with Sonny and Share, and I think. Joe told me he drove him to the auditions and stuff. He wasn't even driving at that point. I mean, that's how young he would have been. Yeah. It just blows your mind that, you know, there's some guys that just have it, you know, from an early age, you just go, yeah, he, you know, he's got that something extra. Yeah. There's just something there where this is, that's his thing. He found his thing and it's, and it, and it just comes out so beautifully, but yeah, he would have been a, a young guy and would, I obviously would have been his first big type of gig for yeah. sure. But we should point out uh, that he did come from a musical family. Uh, for those who don't know, his father, Joe Picaro, who's still, still active today uh, was, you know, for many years, one of the top uh, percu- studio percussionists in, in LA. 
uh, and uh, his, you know, his brothers, uh, Mike and Steve Porcaro, uh, you know, all grew up in this, this musical environment and they did have the advantage of growing up in Los Angeles. So, you know, those things played into it um, and certainly doesn't take away from Jeff's talent, but it, it, it paints a more full picture of how, you know, uh, if you grow up in a musical family, in a music town, the chances of you, uh, you know, using your abilities and having those doors open is, 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 is certainly more helpful than if you grow up like me in the backwoods of Hawaii, <laughs> you know, the well, backwaters. I mean, there's, there's the story and I, his, um, uh, his Jeff's mother actually told me this too. And it's a, it's a documented story that she would burp him to the jazz ride symbol. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody is burping you in rhythm, yeah. swinging, and, and uh, you know, when you're absorbing music, even as a kid through the womb or records are being played. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have some sort of, um, kind of leaning towards the groove and, and musical ideas and how to be musical and stuff. Yeah. I didn't start playing till high school. Right. Right. So, you know, yeah. So there's, there's definite, definite, definite advantages to starting early, but there's also got to be a spark there. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, and, when you have that group like that or Gad or those kind of guys, there's something else going on there that that isn't just sitting down and playing to a metronome or all that stuff. There, right. there's, there's an extra magic there that yeah. you have to appreciate, but you can't put your finger on it exactly. Yeah, I think it's just uh, the ability, well, just, but it's, you know, having that ability, uh, you're surrounded by it and you also have the ability to take it in and and really make sense of it and turn it into something musical very young that's it so for for me my, my perhaps my first um exposure to jeff Procaro uh came in 1976 um with the with the boss gags record silk degrees which of course had the song lido shuffle on it and um i i just remember in 1976 i was uh, I wasn't playing, I was playing, you know, uh, rudimental stuff in school band and taking lessons on the snare drum. I was not a drum set player, but I was already listening to drums. I was about 12 and, um, no, no, I was 10. What am I talking about? 10 years old. And I just remember being blown away by the drums. I loved the tune, you know, it was a big hit on the radio, but I remember really being blown away by the shuffle feel, uh, on, on the drums. And, um, so, uh, do you, you? I'm sure you remember when that when that tune was was out or that that album was out. Oh yeah. See, I got into this stuff I think a little later than you, so I was a late comer to to the party on some of this stuff. I think you know '76. I probably would have still been building model airplanes or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I remember getting this album, and I mean, there's just so many. There's obviously hits off the album, but so many great feels. Um, you know, I think there's a tune on there. I think it's called "What Can I?" Yeah, it's "What Can I Say," and it's he plays the chop barbecue fill in there, which is Maybe, what you know. One, two, three, do, 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 you know, chop, chop barbecue, barbecue and that fill, but it feels so great, and it, it, it he uses it so many times, but you never get tired of it. You, you just you're like, OK, man, yeah, do it again, because he just puts it in the right spot with the right inflection and just feels so good. Yeah. You know, so that whole album and, that, and that's the, all the Toto guys. It's Paige, Hungate, Lukather, Jeff. 
And by the way, a lot of those guys were on that Sonny and Cher. Hungate, Page, and Jeff. Dean Parks was on guitar. Maybe he wasn't on the Skaggs thing. but So you're going to find a lot of the same cast of, of characters on these albums. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that, about how the L.A. studio scene was maybe evolving to a new place um, at at this period of time, sort of the late 70s into the early 80s. And you said some nice stuff about, uh, you know, the the progression of the Wrecking Crew. Um, well, you know, the the L.A. studio scene and, and you mentioned the Wrecking Crew. So maybe uh, talk about that, because that was kind of a cool thought. Well, if you watch that Wrecking Crew movie, you know, those guys will say, we came in and we replaced, there was the old guard uh, of the guys that were doing all the stuff that were wearing the suits. And then the wrecking crew came in and they were in jeans and, you know, shirts, Hama shirts or whatever, and T-shirts. And, and so that was a different thing. And that was an era. And then, and then they, I, they were told you're going to, they're going to wreck the music business because they were young <laughs> and they were playing rock and roll. That's, and so they said, great, we'll take the name. We'll take that. You know, we'll call ourselves the wrecking crew. I think that was Hal Blaine that even maybe dubbed them the Wrecking Crew. And then I look at that era of the 80s and all the, you know, of course there was the New York session guys, but the LA session guys, it would have been like your your Mike Picaros, your Hungates, Nathan East, Lee Sklars, Greg Fillingains, you know, and then Jeff Picaro and Mike Beard and Carlos Vega, John Robinson, all those guys. And to me, there was this core group of guys, like the Wrecking Crew had a core group of guys. And there'd be different drummers. Sometimes it'd be Hal Blaine or Earl Palmer. But roughly, there was a a group, right? And I think the 80s had a similar kind of group. These guys that just were doing all the work and playing on all the records. Yeah. Because they were so good. It sort of uh, heralded perhaps a new sound um, and, you know, uh, a new... I, I definitely, you know, it was just the, the natural evolution of where studio recording was headed at that point, um, without a doubt. You know, the influence of, say, Steely Dan in the 70s, um, you know, really changed the sound of recording, changed the sound of music. And these were the guys that were at the forefront of that, all, all those names that you just mentioned. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 cool. Um, I, I wanted to point out one thing before we leave this period of Jeff Picaro's career in that, that song, the Lido shuffle, which if upon listening to it, generally it just sounds like, you know, do, do back, don't go back. You know, it sort of has that loping rock shuffle that a lot of bands played at that period in time. That was a popular feel for rock bands. You think of tunes like, um, you know, uh, uh, kiss Detroit rock city, doing go back, doing go back. And, you know, it was like, it was a popular thing, but when you really, uh, I, I did a I do a clinic about shuffles and I broke down a bunch of different shuffles from a lot of different periods and so I, I because I loved the song Lido Shuffle I, I I got with the headphones and really broke it down and what Jeff is playing on that thing is unbelievable the inside ghost notes and other subtleties that he has happening um are just incredible you know and it's actually a very difficult groove to really play correctly um you know and that that just, I think one of the things that that always impressed me about Jeff Beccaro is he had so much technical facility, even though, you know, he wasn't a soloist per se, but he had so much that he would put into grooves yet. If, you know, yet the song, the pop songs that he played on, the hits that he played on just sounded 
super, you know, relaxed and natural and easy that the average person could totally get what he was saying. Even though for us musicians, there's a lot more going on there, you know, but I think that's a, maybe a, a great example of what makes a great studio musician. Um, maybe you could comment on that. Yeah. Well, there's, there was a lot of like, well, what you just said, there was something there for uh, the general, general population, but there was always something there for the musician who wanted to delve in a little deeper. There was those subtleties. Um, and, you know, Vinny's the same way, right? There's guys that really cross over uh, where they can appeal to a lot of different types of listeners. And Jeff had amazing, I thought his technique was gorgeous. I'd seen him play tons of times at the Baked Potato, sitting in that small club. And his, I always thought the way he held the sticks and his hand position, his grip, it was beautiful. Yeah, uh, and it would have to be to execute some of the things that those fast right hand sixteenth note hi hat things that he would do, and all those little g- gorgeous uh, grace note things he'd do with the right hand and the left hand. Um, you kind of have to have control of your hands and good technique to pull that off, you know, so fluidly and effortlessly. I think absolutely, absolutely. Um, so as we sort of move through the 70s, Jeff is establishing himself as kind of a top session guy on the L.A. scene. He's, he's well-established already, obviously. And, um, you know, talk about – you keep talking about this core group of guys that are on a lot of these records. And so maybe talk about how they got into Toto and sort of what the – how they created Toto, really, and what the goal or what the idea was or what, what they were going for um, maybe when they put the band together. Well, that would have been – I think that might have – been high school era stuff meaning there was they had a band in high school called rural still life and i think it was a lot of the toto guys um were in that band um i don't know if hungate was in that that might have been even mike picaro but i think toto started originally that was the david page jeff uh inspired thing and then they pulled lukather in yeah they were all kind of in high school together or within a few years of each other. And they, li- I believe they lived in the same sort of ballpark, the same area, er- you know, location. Yeah. Um, so I think that's how that started. Uh, now, whether how, how much of that paralleled the studio stuff, I, I don't know as far as chronology. Um, but yeah, you know, those guys were high school buddies basically. And there's interviews where Jeff, talks about them like being in the band and like how much family they were. They couldn't kid each other because they literally grew up playing in the schoolyard together. There was no pulling one over or BSing each other because they knew, they knew each other so well from being in grade school or not grad on about grade school, but high school together. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think one of the great things about Toto, which again, sort of encapsulated this era where, you know, you could, you could still have a radio hit that had some, you know, like, uh, you know, musical, technical, uh, uh, technically advanced playing, you know, which I think today sort of doesn't, you know, radio hits are now not so much about the performance of the musicians. It's much more about the song and the hook. Uh, but I think, I think these guys were the right, the right guys at that era where, you know, if you, I mean, one of the things people love about Toto is that, the, the performances, you know, they're, they're pop songs, but at the same time, like they're, they're jamming, you know, they're playing great stuff and the musicianship is appreciated as much as the song or the lyric or the melody. 
Um, yet, you know, they walk this line where it doesn't get too much into that stuff because, again, you know, all the hits that they've had over the years. I, I remember hearing Hold the Line in 1979. Again, I had no idea that Jeff Picaro was the guy that had played on Lido Shuffle or played on the Boss Gag stuff or played on that tune. Uh, you sent me another tune, Undercover Angel, which when I was a little kid, uh, around that same period, 76, 77, was another big hit on the radio. Um, but I had no idea that was the same guy. Uh, but Hold the Line is like a 12 or same guys, yeah, same group of guys. It was all these guys making those right. Not it was just Jeff. It was the same again, the same cast of of of, pl- of characters, yeah. players. Yeah, but I mean, hold the line again. It's a twelve eight, but then Jeff's doing all this like with his bass drum, you know. And and I it was a great tune. Obviously, the tune rocked. It really attracted me. It was like it was a great song. But then I'm hearing all this drum stuff going on inside it, going. Who the hell is that? You know, I mean, that was that was cool. Um, yeah, like we said earlier, there was definitely a lot there to catch the average listener, but there was some inside baseball stuff. Right. You, know, you know, those who have ears, let them hear, right? Yeah. You know, so you could pick up on, well, even like Lido Shuffle, all those little ghost notes, the things that would be, that Jeff would put in all his shuffles. Yeah. You know, where the, he was filling in the, the second note of the triplet and then hitting the backbeat and then still playing the second note. So you'd have right. a double left where you'd have to hit the backbeat hard and then immediately come down to a whisper right after to catch that other grace note. Yeah. And, and that's all that stuff. Whereas we as drummers, you know, we can get into there and go, Oh my gosh, that is so cool. And that feels so good. And that's what makes that feel. So, so good. instead of doom to bat, 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 you know yeah all yeah. that yeah and those and those were all done a lot of this stuff like when you read the anecdotes of the different players and artists you realize you know these guys were so good depending on the artist if the artist wasn't too neurotic this stuff was one or two takes yeah it wasn't like they were in there for weeks going gee leto shot you know or whatever let's just run this into the ground a lot of that stuff you know, by their own admission was, oh, this was the first take. This is the third or second. You know, yeah. they weren't they weren't pounding it into the ground. So they were going in no a lot of, a lot of times no click all in the room, right? Yeah. People today might have a hard time imagining because everybody just sends files back and forth, and you're in by yourself putting your part. But back then, they were all in there together a lot of times, um, and, and being a really being a band and laying it down. No click, just going for it and, and, and creating magic first or second time out of the shoot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we, we talked, we'll talk a little bit more about Jeff's shuffle and his, particularly his halftime shuffle. Uh, but I also want to point out another groove that he was using a lot at this time that um, he is the 16th note, you know, the halftime 16th note groove. So it's like, right? So it has a halftime feel. If they were only all at that tempo, yeah. <laughs> and there were some of these, some of these are much, much brisker. Like you know, obviously Michael McDonald. I, I, I keep forgetting that tune. And there were, there's others where they were a little up there. Georgie uh, Porgy is another one. Georgie Porgy. I was just listening That's to a, a Toto version. tune from the first Toto album. Also, it's like get 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 Recent ones, there's a a lot. There's a an LA album. I think it's called 
LA guitar workshop or something, but Jeff plays on a Brandon Fields song called Bull Funk, which Bissonette played originally on the record. Uh-huh. But they do it a little quicker, and he's doing it with the one-handed right hand, one-handed 16th. And, yeah. man, you try to play that all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, that I remember when I went to when I got to LA in '91. That was a test of if you could, you know, if how good you were, as if you could play that, you know, everything with with one hand on the hi hat. That was like, yeah. you know, if you could do that, which nobody could. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, then you know, you were you were happening if you could play that groove. You know, that was a, but like like Jeff said in his instructional video. It's a different sound and a different feel when you do it all with one. Now, obviously, right. you, you hit a tempo point where it's just, you know, you've got to switch to two hands. But but he's right. It, it, there's a certain sound and a way it makes things feel when you execute those things with one hand. Well, and especially because this was coming out of the disco era where two-handed 16th note patterns on the hi-hat was very common. So sure. it's kind of like, well, what if we just did that with one hand and what would that you know, how would that sound? Um, and I should uh, mention to our, our listeners that um, I, uh, my, my student, um, one of my students uh, has kindly created a Spotify playlist. So if you're wondering about what all these tunes sound like, there's going to be a, 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 a Spotify playlist up in the show notes for this uh, for this podcast where you can go listen to a lot of these things that we're talking about with Jeff. I'm also going to try to take this um document that Chris made for me, uh, this this uh, Excel file, and maybe try to list some of these songs so it's like a, a discography of Jeff, maybe broken down uh, by some of these different kind of groups. So you can go uh, listen to a lot of these things uh, for yourself in these different spots if you want to really learn more about Jeff. And it's, you know, again, it's like just the, the, the sheer number of artists that he worked with during all these these eras is just, just mind-blowing. Um, Chris, let's talk a little bit about Steely Dan because Jeff is one of the more famous drummers for his work with Steely Dan, especially sort of in the late 70s into early 80s. Um, talk a little bit about some of these records uh, you know, that, that we talked about um, that, that are sort of Jeff's shining moments with Steely Dan. Yeah, I mean, well, there's Katie Lied, which would have been an earlier one, I think, and he would have been a, a, that would have been a younger Jeff Beccaro. And so he's on the whole album. You know, I think that has like Bad Sneakers and Dr. Wu. There's some great fills at the end of Dr. Wu, uh, you know, which Jeff plays on other things. The triplet he fills with the right hand on the bell and left hand on the snare where he breaks up like, dan, 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 these kind of figures. And he Mm. plays them other things. But he would have been a younger Jeff. So he's on that whole album. That's an amazing album and then yeah, of course, dr Wu has that really nice fade at, ride out at the end right yeah, it, there's a figure d d and then he does these fills around the yeah. figures yeah. or after the figures and then there's of course the other stuff like black friday and which is a which is a, oh, another kind of a rock shuffle in the style of yeah. lido shuffle that's well, like yeah. lido shuffling yeah um, and then uh gaucho and then fm and fm yeah, yeah fm uh was another one of those songs from 76, 77, 78, somewhere around there that was such a huge hit. And it has this distinctive hi-hat pattern. No, FM is, FM is, I think was a part of, for a movie. It was, but I'm saying the, 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 the drum part, he plays on the song FM. 
the high was just straight eights. Oh, okay. Boom, 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 like he does in his instructional video. So that he tried different things, but there's actually just straight eights on that. That other pattern that you're talking about that appears a lot in um, like the Donald Fagan album, mm. Night Fly, the with the high New Frontier. That's a great, a great, but they're all great feels. There's just yeah, and he does. It's, like hard, uh, it's hard to find a Jeff track where you go, nah, that wasn't. I think that's like, a, yeah, that's no, a throwaway. They don't exist. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and the one thing I did want to point out about that song FM, which was such a huge hit at the time, because it was part of a movie soundtrack. There was a movie called FM about it, FM right. DJ, and they were trying to you know shut down the radio station. It was actually it was the the show WKRP in Cincinnati was based on the movie FM. It was like a spinoff. Um, but at the end of that song, FM, when they go to a long fade out, uh, there's some really cool bongo fills that come in like every four bars. And I'm pretty darn sure that that's Jeff as well, playing those bongo fills at the end. It sort of is a, it's a response to like the, the little guitar solo that's, that's happening at the end of that tune. Um, I think you might be right, yeah. But I'm not sure. But it it it's it's just got it's just great. The other um, while we're in the Steely Dan world, a tune that I wanted to point out that's sort of a departure from what we normally hear from uh, Jeff Percaro is the song "Gold Teeth 2, uh, which is actually a jazz waltz. And uh, you know, and it's a it's a great little tune. Uh, at, that really sits in a, more of a jazz vein than it does a rock vein. Um, but tell me the, the story that, you, uh, that you'd heard about where he came up with what he did there. Well, I think he mentioned it in, a, in one of the modern drummer interviews that um, when they were getting ready to do that, I think one of the guys, either Fagan or Becker, gave him an album with a, a, a jazz drummer named Danny Richmond, who I'm sure you know. You yeah. probably know. Charles, well, Charles, Charles Mingus, uh, legendary Charles Mingus, uh, uh, you know, Charles one of the great jazz artists, and Danny Richmond was his drummer for many, many years. There you go. I, and I, I think, think he might have been, been his son-in-law. Don't quote me on that, but okay. it might have been related somehow. I'm going to hold you to that. But maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think they gave him that, some records with that feel with – this guy, this drummer, Danny Richmond, playing that feel like here's kind of the vibe of what we want to do. And Jeff just sat with it and, and then tried to, um, you know, from what he said in these interviews, just tried to sort of emulate that vibe and feel on that track. But yeah, it's a great it's, it's a great track in three. In three. Yeah, it's a waltz. And um, it's just always been one of my favorite uh, Jeff Picaro, you know, tracks. Um, we should point out again in the late 70s and early 80s uh, that, you know, Tunes that people might not realize, but Jeff Percaro is the drummer on Michael Jackson's Beat It. Um, mega hit, you know, and they brought in Eddie Van Halen to play the guitar solo. And it's just this cool combination of the Michael Jackson vibe with the L.A. Studio Guy vibe with Eddie Van Halen's rock and roll vibe. You know, all of which were in 1980, 80, whenever that was, early 80s when, when that uh, Michael Jackson record came out. Is that is that from Thriller, Beat It? I think it's yeah. Well, I believe it was all John Robinson. Yeah, that was John Robinson. Jeff and um, rest in peace. Indugu. Indugu played on. Uh, yeah, he played and on like Pete. Played on Billy Jean. Billy Jean. Yeah. that's right. Um, Jeff played on um, Doggone Girl Is Mine, Human Nature. Wow. Beat it. Yeah, those are great, 
great tracks. There's probably one other in there that um, escapes me right now. But I mean, Michael Jackson, you know, it doesn't get more epic than that as a studio musician. Uh, the other, the other one that I was surprised to learn was that um, that Jeff played on the song "Mother" by Pink Floyd on the Wall, which you know you think, why isn't Nick Mason playing on that? He was the drummer for Pink Floyd. But there are some very subtle um, time uh, signature issues in that song, "Mother." And if you go back and listen, the drums actually don't even come in until the middle of the song when the guitar solo kicks in. But it's things are changing. There's some kind of five, four-ish bars and some nine, eight-ish kind of feeling things. And apparently, at least according to what I read, Nick Mason wasn't really comfortable with that kind of those time change things. So they brought in Jeff Beccaro and it sounds killer. I mean, that's an epic, you know, that's epic. That's right up there with Beat It. <laughs> you know, I mean, just beyond legendary. So, um, you know, he was he was the go to guy uh, in addition to everything else. Um, well, that just yeah. shows the diversity again, because, you know, you go from, you know, doing the king of pop records, then to going, you know, you know, Pink Floyd is rock royalty, right? Yeah. I mean, so you've got sort of the old school rock royalty and then the king of pop and whatever, whatever the, the king of whatever genre Jeff seems to be, be on it. You Slide know, he, right in. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Exactly. And of course, so let's move on to Toto 4 because that was sort of a bit of a, a revelation. Uh, that album came out in, in 82. Um, and of course, the big uh, big hits on that are Rosanna and Africa. Um, you want to talk about either one of those? I mean, they're sort of probably two of his most well-known grooves to, to the average person that's just sort of beginning to get into Jeff Porcaro. For sure. See, so I went and saw I saw them in concert when I was in high school. But again, I wasn't too deep into the rabbit hole of drums at that point. So I was almost looking at it more from just, I guess, a regular concert goer perspective. I didn't have the deep in the rabbit hole musician ears at that time. Um, so I didn't really get super deep into that till later. But I mean, obviously, that's just an iconic. I mean, I, they won so many Grammys that year. You, it's on YouTube. You can see them winning all these awards. Um, but you know what's crazy about that that song, Rosanna, is you see it written out. You know, Jeff talked about what he how he played it. But until recently, I don't know how many years ago, but in the last I don't know couple three years, the stems or just the bed tracks of the drums have come out. Yeah. And what's funny to me is, I don't know about you, but in my mind, just because of the way he described it and sort of the way you hear it, I always thought he put all those ghost notes all the way through on the shuffle. And when you hear that broken down track, you realize that, especially at the beginning, he's not filling in all those ghost notes on that shuffle. The, the constant ghost notes don't happen till later. And I think it was there was a, an app called Jamit. Yes. And, and one of our other endorsers, Mark Atkinson, did all the transcribing for Jamit. So Jamit, you can get the tracks just instrument only and the transcription. So Mark had the bed tracks and he transcribed the whole part. Wow. When you see that, when you listen to it, you see the transcription, you realize, wow, Jeff didn't play all those ghost notes at the beginning, but your your ears and your mind put them in. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, maybe Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know if you experienced that, but when you actually realize he didn't do all that at the beginning, that that doesn't happen till a little later. Well, and I think just to step back a bit, um, 
that this song is so epic because uh, it's based on the famous Purdy shuffle, Bernard Purdy's halftime funk shuffle that he played on some Steely Dan things and on a bunch of other tracks earlier. Uh, and, um, you know, Jeff kind of took that and actually made it kind of one of his signature grooves. He ended up kind of doing it his own way. And I encourage everybody who's listening to go just type in Rosanna drum tracks only and you'll really get a sense if you're familiar with Jeff, but you're, you know, you know, a couple of tunes or this or that, go listen to that breakdown because you, you get a sense of, in my mind, what made him such a great drummer in the studio. You know, everything is clear. Everything is so beautifully in time. You understand everything that he's saying, but at the same time, you know, he's, he's, it's just creating this, this absolutely beautiful, gorgeous feel. Um, and you hear how intricate the parts are, what we've been talking about, uh, with the ghost notes, but yet a subtle usage of them. He's not a machine. He's a human being who's building and developing his part. Um, and I, I, you know, I really get a sense of all of that. Uh, it's just such a pleasure to listen to, you know, and, and for me, even knowing that song and having played that song and worked on that groove, it's a very obviously difficult groove for people to learn. You know, a lot of people, if they get to a point where they learn the Purdy Shuffle, they feel like, yeah, it's an arrival, you know. Um, but that's definitely what I, I love about that. Uh, about yeah, that I tune. think, again, once again, most of those Toto albums, there's no click. Maybe some of them, like the seventh one or Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, I think, because they had some Synclavier program stuff, maybe on one or two tunes. But most, all that stuff is no click. When you listen to that and you realize no click, and then I read in it, I think it was a Modern Drummer sidebar, a tribute issue to Jeff, mm-hmm. where it had anecdotes from other players and musicians. David Page said in this interview, or sidebar, that he recollected that was a one-taker. Wow, Rosanna so, was. So can you imagine, no click, one take, and you go in and you throw down that hard, and, yeah. and you, oh, I, 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 you know, I guess it's, for me it's hard to fathom. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, on the subject of, of studio uh, drumming, um, I, I, uh, I, I only got to see Jeff play live once. And that was in 1991, the year that I went to music school in Los Angeles. And I'm so happy I got the chance to see him. I was, it was at the Baked Potato. We should maybe talk about the legendary Baked Potato and, you know, what, what all these cats did there. But, um, Maybe maybe set us up a little bit, and then I'll I'll talk about Jeff and the way I I experienced him playing from so close, you know, because baked potato is a tiny little hole in the wall. Um, talk about the baked potato for a sec, because that's such a legendary place. And for those who you know are maybe a little younger or haven't been to L.A., what what you know what was that, and how does that relate to the story of Jeff Porcaro? The the infamous Spud. The infamous it's, it's known by the L.A. guys. The, it, was, it was never. Let's, we're going to the baked potato. It's. It's. We're going to go to the Spud. And um, the first time I had two musical experiences that were almost on a religious religious level, where I literally came close to freaking out. One was seeing Vinnie Colaiuta for the very first time ever, and it was the first in, the first gig that Dog Cheese ever did. There was this band called Dog Cheese. It was basically Joni Mitchell's rhythm section. And it was the first time they were going to play that night. And the first time I ever saw, really saw Jeff play, because I'd seen him. The when, was, when was that, the dog cheese show? 
That would have been the 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. Wow. Mid to late 80s. Did you grow up in Southern California, Chris? Yeah, I'm, I'm a native. Great. Um, so what an amazing opportunity to see those guys at the time that they were like at their peak, peak and doing all those in, recordings. Incredible. It was the heyday. It was the era. And then, so the other time I was seeing Jeff because I'd seen him in high school at the Toto concert. But, you know, you're a nosebleed seat. You're yeah. like, whatever. I, you know. But to be able to be at the baked potato and literally sit five to ten feet from the drums and see and feel the power. And I'll never forget, that was one of those like religious type things where I, it literally affected me, you know, because other than seeing him as a speck years before, you know, I didn't even know how kind of what he, how tall he was or anything. And he wasn't, you know, he was a shorter guy, but man, he walked in the back of that club. And I remember, I swear, well, I know for a fact he was wearing jeans, a jean jacket and the brown distressed suede cowboy boots. I'll never forget it. He walked in. I'm not kidding you, Daniel. He was a smaller stature, uh, you know, guy, but um, there was such a, his vibe and presence was so large, dude. Yeah. I'm not kidding. He walked in that back, and there was just like a bubble of coolness. I, I, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Yeah. He was the coolest dude, and and just so I, I can't even describe it. But the, the 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 hipness cool factor without trying, and he just walked in, and there was just this aura and and vibe, and you're like, and I just remembered looking, going, oh my gosh, that, it's him. And then he played, and to be that close and feel that energy and and his drums sounded so it sounded like a record his drums sounded so gorgeous and, and just like a record and his time was impeccable and the way he played he just looked cool and it felt great and i just remember you know it was probably one of those greg matheson gigs or yeah. he might have been playing with charisma which he's he would fill in when carlos didn't do it or it could have been david garfield i don't remember that specific it's probably more greg matheson at that point yeah anyway it, it, it blew my mind because you know the other thing is you got to remember there's no youtube now yeah, so no in, not in the mid 80s in not your in mind the mid, not in the mid 90s <laughs> but in your mind you're thinking you build up stuff in your head about this the quote unquote, the studio and studio musicians and stuff. And you start thinking, well, okay, well they go in there and they craft this stuff and, and they, it's like an erector set. They spend time and cause you don't know, you just read articles. You know, if you're not in that scene, you don't really sure. know. Yeah. But to see these guys and then you realize, Oh man, this is, this is even deeper than what I've heard on a record. This is yeah, everything right. you've heard on a record and even better Times 10, because when you get to see him do it live, you're... Yeah, the record doesn't translate the energy necessarily. Yeah. You, don't, you don't feel the air moving off the drums, and you're not getting the visual. Yeah. It's a whole other sensory experience going on. It, it was amazing. And same thing with Vinny. Those yeah. two guys yeah. freaked me out. Well, I should... I mean, just again, for people that don't know that much about the baked potato, it's a, it's, it's still there. Thankfully, it's a very, it's a tiny hole in the wall and all they serve is baked potatoes. So you, you order a baked potato with different kind of fillings. Do they even serve booze in there? Yeah, there's booze and there's there's potatoes are ginormous. Yeah, the potatoes are huge. So it's like a meal in a potato and that's all they've got. And literally, what do you think? 50 people can fit in there? Something like that. Maybe a little more. It's, it's the club. It's like a tiny, but It was started by uh, Don Randy, keyboard player, who was one of the Wrecking Crew guys. So it does – 
go back to those roots. It's been around since the eighties. Um, I think his son, Justin runs it now. Um, and you know, if you were a young aspiring musician in LA, you could go to the baked potato. It wasn't that much to see, you know, whoever was playing. Usually it was pretty reasonable. Yeah. And you know, was the great, you would see the greatest of the yo cats of the session guys in LA throw down. It was a club that encouraged, you know, the most, you know, technical, you know, crazy over the top, uh, technical playing. That was what it was all about. It was the fusion club. So you have music schools, you know, musicians Institute. I went to the Dick Grove school of music and, you know, USC and all these other places there, MI, uh, Musicians Institute, like I said. And, uh, you know, and, and it'd be nothing but music students just filling up the, uh, the, the joint. And you would see, you know, all these guys from Toto. You'd see Vinnie Caliuta. You'd see, uh, I saw this, these Frank Zappa alumni bands there. I mean, just the most amazing stuff. So if you're a young musician, that, was a, an incredible place to go. And the one time that I did see Jeff Picaro was there at the Big Potato. And, you know, often these bands were loose con- aggregations because these guys all were playing in different different places uh, with different major artists or bands like Toto. So that when they were in L.A., they would get together and have fun. And so a band called Charisma that you mentioned, also sometimes called Los Lobotomies, I think that's what who was playing with it when I saw them. I, kn- I know Steve Lukather was, was playing guitar probably Greg Matheson on keyboards. I'm not sure who else was doing it. And they would do stuff like they would play all blues, but they would play it as like a halftime funk shuffle, you know? Um, they play standards, jazz standards, rock standards. And then they would, then, you know, when someone like Vinny would get in there, they would do a tune called where's one, which, you know, look that up. Vinny Caliuta, where's one. Uh, you cannot find one. I mean, it's the most off putting song. The odd times are so intense. And Terry Bozio would play there and Kurt Biscara and just, you know, I mean, it's like, just a legendary place. Um, so what I, what I, at the beginning of this whole uh, section that we're talking about right now, what I, what I wanted to say about seeing Jeff, my experience of it is that I was kind of unnerved a little by how hard or how loud he was playing. Cause normally uh, musicians that play in a small club, maybe adjust their volume a little bit to, to the room. Uh, you don't want to tear the, the roof off the room. But not so in this case. And I was, again, like you, sitting five feet from the drums. Um, I was just knocked out by the volume and the intensity coming off it. And I was talking to somebody about that. Uh, and they said, yeah, because, you know, when you're in the studio, the way you hit the drums, you got to hit them to get, the, to get those mics to respond properly and with consistency. And it isn't that he was bashing, like you said earlier. He, it's just the clarity and the consistency with which he hit and this, the way he was speaking is what I like to put it. Like, like, kind of like Gad, everything he said was just perfectly clear to me. I got everything he was speaking about. Well, that goes back to that technique thing too, because he would, you know, there was never bashing or or, or wasted arm motions or or high above the head arm motions. But he got that snap so that when that hit stick hit the snare of the tom. There was that last minute snap into the drum and then pulling off that just brought out the fullness and the richness of it. And, you know, he had to play harder. I don't know. I don't even know if he played that hard in the studio. He had to play harder because when you're in that small club and that small stage and you've got Lukather 
right next to you with the Marshall cab. <laughs> and, and look, if there wasn't taming it down, it wasn't like, oh, we're in a small club. I'll turn the volume. It was loud. So just to cut, you know, just to keep up, I think he had to play a little harder maybe than he would even have would have liked to have just to just to not get buried. Because <laughs> those guys, even though it was a small club, they weren't like, oh, we're in a small club. We'll just all turn down. No, they dug in. Yeah. They went for it. They were playing yeah. hard. They, they were, were going for it. Well, and that was another thing about the Baked Potato. It was musicians unabashedly just there to throw down as much as they could, you know, and that, so it was like, screw playing quietly for the room. We're going to just blow the, the roof off this joint. Well, and it was the chance to play with their pals and get their yayas out. It was exactly. a chance to let it out. Maybe they, you know, not every session you're going to do was magic. Sometimes it was trite, lame stuff, yeah. you know, and maybe they'd done that all day. And now's their chance to go to the potato with their pals and, and, and really just let it out, let, let out some stuff, you know, yeah. some whatever built up stuff that they hadn't been able to do earlier in the day. Very good. Well, I think, uh, I think we have encompassed quite a wide swath of Mr. Picaro's career. And, um, I really, again, encourage, uh, listeners out there, if they're interested in any of these things, I'm going to try to get as much of this stuff up and as many of these tunes into a Spotify playlist as we can in our show notes so that, um, you know, you can really just uh, absorb yourself into the, the world of Jeff Percaro. Uh Chris Brady, I want to thank you for your time and your stories. And leave us with one of those stories that you were telling me earlier about, uh, you know your own your own interactions with Jeff Percaro because it's so great. Uh, you well, there's know. a couple. There's a couple of baked potato, and it and it and it, it speaks it speaks to his character because I think he was a very. I didn't know him super super well. I met him a handful of times, in, you know, with other people. So it's not like we hung out, but I think he was a very giving guy from all that you read. And he yeah, was a, I should just say there's a couple of clinics uh, that Jeff Picaro did some some uh, video excerpts on YouTube of him lecturing, and you can get a sense of his. You know, he didn't do much of that. And by the way, he never played a drum solo, right? Theoretically, I mean, a, a, he never well, took long solos. To his, from what Jeff would say, he hated drum solos. Although there's a Boz Skaggs album, I think it's called um, Other Roads, and there's a song called I Don't Hear You. There's an eight-bar section near the end of the song, which is as close to a Jeff drum solo as you're ever going to get. And it's him just kind of playing fills around hits and figures. Yeah. But if you want to quote-unquote hear a Jeff solo, that's probably as, as close as you're ever going to get. Yeah. And uh, one Elvis. other place he does some really neat stuff, which you pointed out to me, is the Dire Straits song Calling Elvis from 1991. Yeah. Of that song yeah, has some yeah. really interesting. He does some really neat stuff. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. So you're talking about his character. He was a. He just had a. I think a very. Uh, I don't know. Just a good. A good spirit. A good soul towards his fellow man. And and so that I met him. Well, there's one interaction I had. It was the baked potato. And Bis, Greg Bissonette was there. He was sort of a, a a mentor, a teacher, and a friend of mine. And and I, this is when the Jeff Picaro instructional videotape just came out and I brought it with me and I told Greg it literally had just come out and I had it with me because I'm thinking oh, I'll get Jeff to sign it but part of me was too nervous and I thought well this is lame I'm going to look like a big goober like hey Jeff can you you know you know hey me right. Joe Green can you sign my football <laughs> so, right 
So, and I told Greg, I, and I was showing Greg, it was at the end of the night, second set had finished, and I said, check it out. And, and I said, boy, I sure like Jeff to sign this, but I just feel kind of weird. And Greg was like, buddy, you better get him to sign it. If you don't stay and get him to sign it, I'm never going to let you live this down. You better do it. <laughs> and he goes, I can, because I got to go, but I'm not going to stay, but you better get it done. Now I got this pressure, right? So everybody's gone. I'm at the back side of the baked potato, the, the, the back of the club by the alleyway. And if anybody's ever been to the baked potato, they know there's a little hallway that goes out from the club to the back parking lot. The there's a bathroom and then it leads out to the back. And I'm the only one out there. I'm standing out there. Now I'm freaked out because Greg's put the pressure on me. I was just going to go home myself. And I'm looking in the club and I can see Jeff at the bar through the little hallway. And he looks out and he sees me. Now I'm the only one out there. So the only reason why he would come out is because so he sees me and he walks out to the back and he comes right up to me. And in that low voice, I'll never forget the verbatim. He looks at me and he goes, what do you got there, my man? And I almost, my knees started to buckle. I felt like a little schoolgirl, like, you know, I, I was meeting, my hero had come out. And, but this just shows you what a nice guy he was. He could tell, because I had the videotape. Right. He could tell he you were waiting, but you were nervous. He, yeah, he knew I was waiting. And, and he initiated the thing. And I said, well, I have your videotape, and I'd love for you to sign it. And he goes, let me check this out. He goes, I just did it. He goes, I've never seen, I haven't seen the finished piece. I don't even know what it looked like. And he was looking at the little booklet and there's little transcriptions. He was looking at all that stuff. And he, he signed a little thing to Chris, all the best, Jeff, which I still have. Yeah. I, I put it in a little Jeff scrapbook. Oh, and I, yeah. I am that guy. <laughs> and, then, um, and then there was another time where, again, with, with Bissonette, and my buddy, Mark Morales, who's a, a great guy, a friend forever, he works at DW mm-hmm. Drums, which you're a DW artist. I am. And um, anyway, so it was Mark and myself and Greg, and it was during one of the breaks, and Jeff had played this fill, and he and he's played this fill. It was It's like a paradiddle diddle, minus one left, and you put a bass drum in instead, and he's played it on like English Eyes. He played it on a, a Brian Duncan album as an intro. There's a couple of fills in there, or a couple of albums, two or three albums where he's played this fill. Anyway, he played this fill. I think it was Charisma. He was playing with Charisma. Might have been great. No, nah, I think it was Charisma. Mike Landau. Yeah. Anyway, we learned the fill during the break, and we, the three of us practiced it, and Greg said, okay, now when Jeff comes out, I'll count us in real quick. I'm going to say, hey, Jeff, and then we're going to play the fill in unison on our knees. So, we, so Jeff came out. And Greg said, hey, Jeff, check this out. And we went, we did the fill like, <clears throat> and Jeff looked at us and went, oh, man, you guys are stealing all my best stuff. <laughs> and then he came over and Greg introduced us. And so those are a couple of things, but they, they kind of speak to what it really what a cool giving guy, what a what a nice guy he was. He yeah. would always, he, and Gad's the same way. I met Gad recently. And he would take, and Jeff would take the time to talk to you, take a picture kind of look at you in the eye and hear what you had to say. And I, that was pretty neat. Yeah. That was a takeaway for me. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, they always say uh, sometimes you don't really want to meet your heroes, you know, because they aren't necessarily the, the people that you hope they are. And this sort of was the opposite case. This is always... this one guy you'd want to meet. Yeah. I'm just, I'm grateful that I got it. And I saw him more times than I can count at the baked potato. And I'm, I'm grateful 
I was able to do that. And I'm grateful for those little times I did get to meet him and just at least shake his hand and have him say something to me. Those are, I'm, I'm just glad that I got to have those experiences. Well, I'm very grateful that uh, you took your time today to come and, and hang with me here on the Daniel Glass Show. And thanks for bringing your expertise and your enthusiasm and your knowledge about Jeff Picaro. Wow. Um, yeah, appreciate it. We man. could have gone on another two hours, but I'm, I'm yes. glad I'm glad that you asked me. And uh, I was looking forward to this. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. All right. All right. Well, Chris Brady, thank you very much for being on the Daniel Glass Show. All right, DG. All right.